Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere Podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Neufeld, CEO of TechTerra and host of Nowhere. Today, my guest is Sean Gorman. Sean was CEO of Pixelate Earth until their acquisition by Snap in March 2021. Today, he's building out interesting technology for the future of location. Hi, Sean. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me, John. This is great. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to connect again. So I want to get to the idea of the future of location, but I think we should set the scene for our listeners first. So with Pixelate Earth, you're working to build out a crowdsourced and perpetually updated 3D map of the world for machines and humans. Tell me what led you there and why you wanted to do this. Yeah, it was a lofty goal that we never quite got to, but it was a fun journey striving for that. The general concept was we wanted to see if it was possible to crowdsource a 3D map. You know, instead of just the Googles and the Apples of the world having street view vehicles and airplanes and drones to go and and create really cool 3D imagery for augmented reality and mapping, we thought it'd be really cool if anybody could contribute to that in a meaningful way. That opened up a Pandora's box of interesting computational problems to try and solve and hit our heads against the wall on for a while. And it was super fun. We got we got pretty far down the road with it. We had like an ambassador program where we had sent out 360 GoPro cameras to people all over the globe and had them collecting imagery and uploading it. And then we'd process it and generate, you know, 3D maps and future databases with it. And that was going super well. And then to to subsidize it, we we're also working for, you know, a handful of companies that were interested in augmented reality and autonomy that wanted to map out pilot areas and test areas to go through in different cities or campuses, things along those lines, to see if these approaches could work for the kind of AR experiences that they were looking to help facilitate. And in the process of doing that, we were mapping out a, a big global city for, for Snap as a test. And uh, they got super interested in what we were doing and asked if we wanted to come join their team. And that sounded awesome to have those kind of resources. And so we, we jumped on board. And I think, you know, one of the things where we realized it was going to be challenging was we initially really wanted to do was allow anybody to scan an area with their phone. And then that could be the contribution. And that would really be a big unlock if, if anybody could just contribute by scanning their neighborhood or their house or their block or their favorite place to, to hang out with the phone. And then they could stitch that into a 3D map and everybody could be contributing and stitching out interesting areas to do fun things with. But what we found as we worked on it and we continued to work on it at Snap was that the GPS on commodity phones wasn't good enough to be able to co-register those scans with you know, some kind of baseline like aerial LIDAR or aerial photogrammetry. And so that kind of been the sticking point. But we did find that like a GoPro, which is also, you know, just a couple hundred bucks, kind of like a mobile phone, you know, has telemetry and 360 collections on them. And, and that would work. And we could map out large geographic areas with that. And the cool thing is, you know, you, you mount it on a helmet, on a bike or a pole, and you can cover a large amount of geography really quickly. So that, that ended up working well. But, you know, the number of people that have GoPros, not so many, right? Versus, like we all have a mobile phone for the most part. And so it was just a much smaller footprint. And so looking at that as a restriction, we knew we were going to need more resources. And a company like Snap had those resources and had, you know, exciting ambitions to map lots of cities, which was which was super exciting for us. It was a nice kind of marriage of, of technology and capability. And they also had an amazing AR team that was doing really cool work as well that we were excited to learn more about and expand our understanding of the space. 
exponentially by by working with them. Right. I mean, it's amazing to be able to get those kind of resources and to scale out a project like that. I, I want to go back to the cell phone and the GPS not being good enough. So it's interesting when you mention that because I think most people who use a phone would say their GPS is good enough for what they're trying to do. But for what you're trying to do, you need another level of accuracy, right? And so what was it within the phone that made the, the GPS not as accurate as you were hoping for? Yeah, there's a lot of challenges with the phone. You know, it's kind of like, I think for many things, current commodity GPS is like you know, three to five meter accuracy in the best case scenario. If you have open sky and no interference and, and no issues. But in, in most places or in many places, especially where there's a lot of people, there's big buildings and you get these things called multi-path errors where the signal bounces off a building and comes in. And you know, GPS is all about triangulating satellites and being able to estimate the time between the signal, the satellite and the location that you're in. So if the signal bounces off something, that's adding latency into the signal, which adds error into the correction for figuring out where your GPS is. So, and I'm sure you know most people have experienced this going into a big city, and all of a sudden the GPS is putting them on the wrong block or putting them on the wrong side of the street. You want to get a, a Lyft or an Uber or a Grab, and and you know you're on the opposite side of the street where the driver is, and you're trying to figure out how to to meet up, and it's a bit of chaos and juggling or you know, you're getting directions and you, you come out of you know, the metro or the subway and you don't know which way to go because the GPS doesn't do a great job of orienting you or gets you to the building, but you can't find the entrance. These are all kind of common you know, GPS foibles. Um, in large, that's by the core accuracy. And then when you have these multipath errors that are introduced in cities, these things just get worse and worse. Right. And it's one thing when the GPS, you know, puts you on the wrong side of the block and you have to walk around to find the Uber or, you know, you have to take a few more steps to find the entrance to the building. But it's quite another when you're trying to co-register images and LIDAR and, and put things together very precisely. So I can see how that would be a big issue to try and overcome. Yeah, it just ended up being something, you know, mathematic we couldn't find a solution to. And who knows, in the future, people may be able to solve this problem or also GPS is, is getting better. There's, you know, new exciting GPS technologies that are being developed. But for us at the moment, Pixlate in the moment that when we were within Snap, that ended up being a, a big barrier to, to go forward. And so when we were at, at Pixlate, we ended up manually dragging the model and getting it close and then running our computer vision algorithms to get everything to lock in and, and sync together. But obviously, people dragging their models to get it close enough to sync doesn't scale terribly well. Yeah, it's hard to do the whole world if you still rely on someone to, to drag the model around. So, you know, when we look at scale and, and the future of location, I'm really curious what the future of location looks like to you and how you see that building out over the next, say, five to ten years. Yeah, I mean, there's so many exciting technologies that are on the horizon, you know, whether it's augmented reality and everything that you can do within that. Super exciting, but also autonomy. You know, I think autonomous vehicles get a lot of the attention, and there's also a lot of challenges around that with insurance and safety. But there's also robotics, being able to do food deliveries and you know, uh, drone navigation and delivery. I think a lot of things that we see as like sci-fi and future concepts are really predicated around this concept of of location and being able to have machines successfully navigate the world the way humans navigate the world. And in order to pull that off, I think in, in many ways, we need something better than GPS to be able to do that. And I think that was the space that has gotten us you know, particularly excited of looking at you know, how do we solve some of these long tail problems that are preventing so many of the exciting future concepts that everybody really gravitates towards, you know, what are the blockers to that? And I think with our experience, we very much ran into a brick wall of, of a limitation. But the more we researched and spent time thinking about it and talking to lots of people, we see these same 
brick walls popping up in a lot of places and locations seem to be this kind of pervasive restriction that keeps us from going you know, where we want to go in the long term. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you think about GPS being a three to five meter accuracy for most people in most applications, that is really limiting if you want to do something like augmented reality overlays. You know, if I'm a tourist in a city and I want to get more information about the Eiffel Tower or the Statue of Liberty or something, that's maybe big enough for me to be able to see and get an accurate enough position. But if it's something smaller or much more local, that data is just not going to work. Yeah, totally. You know, especially you know, we think of three to five meters, and that's best case scenario, right? And you get into a city that can be ten meters, fifty meters, hundred meters off as those multi-path errors accumulate, and you have more issues. And so, it's, you really get restricted by the the number of use cases that you can can participate in. And one of the ones that I think about a lot is like some of the gaming mechanics that you see around GPS games like Pokemon Go, but lots of other ones as well, right? You know, even like geocaching. If we go go back in time and you know the mechanics all become very similar. Like you can get to a place and trigger a gaming mechanic that you've gotten, you know, within close to the POI or where you you cache the thing and set a point. But that's kind of the end of the story, right? You can't do much more than just say, hey, I've arrived at the thing and engage with me, right? But when we play a lot of other games in the real world, you know, it's very much predicated on a much more fine-grained understanding of location and spatial awareness. And that's where you know, a lot of these things think of, of if you can go down to centimeters of, of accuracy and provide spatial awareness of what's going on with a person's location, then you know, the number of gaming mechanics that you can introduce into an experience becomes a lot more exciting. So a Pokemon Go type game is reliant on you getting into a, a certain radius, hitting a point and crossing the radius and, and being in a spot, and then it triggers something. But what you're saying is with better positioning, we could have game mechanics that are driven by the location, right? So you could interact in specific locations or routes or places more than just within a radius of you know X point. Or interacting with other people as well, right? You know, when you get into three to five meter range, and then you know, especially in urban areas where there are a lot of people to interact with. Those areas just get bigger. So, you know, you and I interacting and having a gaming mechanic between each other becomes challenging. But when you can dial that down to, you know, potentially centimeters level of precision, the ability for me to tag you or you to tag me to, you know, again, to go back to really simple games we played as kids becomes a possible thing to do. And that, you know, opens up a much bigger aperture on the kind of things people can design and come up with to have fun, entertaining interactions outside, you know, interacting with in a more social setting. It becomes actually incredible what you could do then because you could have a proper and seamless integration for things like augmented reality and and interactive gaming. One of the things I like to do quite a bit is get out and ride my bike. And so there's a, a set of switchbacks over here where uh, I like to ride up as and see if I can beat my time every week. But on Strava, the guy who has the KOM or the king of the mountain, he is like miles ahead of me. I, I'll never catch him. And it would be amazing if you could have some sort of AR overlay of where that guy is on his bike so that I could see how far behind I am or perhaps be motivated to try and catch him. You know, is this the sort of thing you're talking about opening up? Yeah, totally. No, it's like same thing here in Boulder, right? There's so many pro athletes and former Olympians that like getting a KOM in anything, I think <laughs> some kind of Herculean. Good luck, right? Yeah. <laughs> so on one level, yeah, like having more accurate GPS so that you can you see these things becomes becomes really exciting or really depressing <laughs> if you see how right, far behind. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I think you know probably many people have had this experience if you use Strava quite a bit. Like my my wife and I will go like a skin or a hike up a, a mountain and we'll go and be you know going side by side talking to each other and we get to the top 
after a couple of miles and our times are like four or five minutes different, right? And again, it's these same kind of, you know, errors accumulate as you're trying to get two different people's signals with two different errors that are propagating across them and you're matching those to segments and that error accumulates and then you get this big differentiation in time. Even if it was like one time we were uh, hiking across a stream and I had, I didn't have shorts of pockets on it. So I gave my phone to my wife and forgot to take the phone back. And so we hiked all the way back up out of this canyon and she had both phones in her pocket and the times, you know, still, you know, minutes apart. That's crazy. Yeah. With the, uh, with the different devices on the same person. That's wild. So what kind of avenues do you see to resolve this issue about GPS inaccuracy? And how can we bring about a more accurate position so that we can unlock some of these options and opportunities? Yeah, I think that's what's really exciting. There's so many cool ideas being implemented right now and smart people working on the problem. And so and on one hand, it's been intimidating jumping into that and thinking that you know maybe we can have a novel approach to solving that. But I think probably the most exciting thing is I think the problem will be solved over the next you know, several years by several different approaches. And you know some of them are hardware-based, where you have new satellite constellations going up. There's like Zona and Trustpoint. They're launching new satellites that are going to be low-Earth orbit satellites. And those are privately funded too, right? Those aren't government. Correct. So, so that becomes, you know, one of the challenges is you have to pay for that. So everybody having free GPS on all their commodity devices, you know, it's probably something that won't emerge from that initially. And some of those, I think Zona may have a one satellite up already. So, I mean, these private constellations of low Earth orbit satellites aren't that far away. Obviously, one's not going to give you a position, but over the next year or two, you know, these folks should have working constellations up, which is, which is really exciting. There's also, within the next three years, uh, Galileo is, is putting up a low Earth orbit test satellite constellation. I'm actually just reading about this yesterday. And I think similar to when they put up the original Galileo, they put up a test constellation of like six satellites first, and they make sure that's all working and they have a test bed. And then once they get that all nailed in, then they, they launch the full constellation out again. And similarly, these will have so the private systems will be much better accuracy because of the lower orbits and the newer technology that they're shooting up on those. But still, you know, the, it's three years till the experimental one goes up. I don't know how many years that'll need to run, but probably a couple of years, and then they'll need to launch the big one. So you're, you're probably looking close to 10 years, maybe like seven or eight years, best case scenario. I'm sure there's people that know more about this that give a better estimate, but you know, it's not tomorrow per se. Right. Yeah. I mean, when Galileo launched, I remember it took quite a while to get from that initial satellite up to uh, the full constellation. So I'd expect these will be the same, but it's interesting that the private markets see enough of a space there to spend the big money required to build out a whole satellite constellation to essentially replicate, duplicate, and perhaps replace what the free government service is providing. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how that market emerges. I mean, there's definitely big existing government contracts in the U.S. and I believe other countries as well where they want to back up to the public P&T system, having a, a private vendor to provide that. I know is something that the government's been looking for for a while. So there's, you know, hopefully, hopefully that'll scratch out some of the immediate revenue itch and then I think the commercial market will develop well also. But interestingly, that's not the only space where people are, are working. There's also a lot of you know, several companies that are doing like ultra wideband sensors that they put within cities to help solve the multipath problem. So having you know, fixed sensors that are on buildings within cities to help with some of the error corrections that, that occur. Obviously, the challenge there is you need to deploy physical sensors on buildings in hundreds, if not thousands of cities that have big buildings around the globe. Yeah, and that's super hard to scale, right? Where you, where you could punch up a bunch of satellites, deploying hundreds of sensors across hundreds and thousands of cities is not an easy task. 
but exciting. You know, obviously, these companies are getting funded. They're out there creating business. And in a lot of the biggest cities where the biggest problems are, that's you know, a nice, more short-term fix that can happen more rapidly than having to fund and launch and design, design and launch satellites. But then there's all the interesting things where uh, Google, for instance, with Android, a couple of years ago, they opened up the full GNSS raw signal so that you can get all of the information with that's coming off of the satellite, like the carrier phase and pseudo range and ADR, which back the carrier phase out of, and all the statistical metadata that you would need for doing like a differential GPS calculation. And they've been running a, a thing called the decimeter challenge for the last couple of years, which is a big Kaggle competition where folks go in and see if they can use this new data to come up with a better GPS solution. And those are getting, you know, below two meters in accuracy from, if you look at the latest Kaggle competition, not all the techniques are necessarily deployable. Like the current one uses like NOAA cores data, for instance, but you can't get that. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of like a yeah. you know, process. That's thing, a post-process kind of thing though. Yeah. Which is still super useful, right? You know, you can get a bunch of GPS collects and then post-process to improve the accuracy after the fact, which is a really helpful for a lot of things. Like if you're going out and you know, collecting asset data and you have people out tagging things and then after you've collected that data, you want to improve the accuracy and batch for it. That's super compelling in and of itself. I mean, obviously, the thing we all ideally want is live, real-time, centimeter kind of level accuracy or sub-meter or sub-centimeter. Yeah, we all want real-time, you know, perfect data coming to our phone whenever we need it, when we want it for free. But that, it, seems, it seems unlikely to happen in that sort of way. Is there a way that we can use other people's phones, even though inaccurate, to help improve our own positioning on our own devices? Yeah, that's the area that we've been exploring. Back when we were doing Pixelate, one of the, the customers were or wanted us to map their campus and, and do some VPS testing with some of the VPS techniques that we had been, been working on. And, and so part of that, we need ground truth, right, to see how accurate the VPS was. So as part of that, we, we rented like an RTK differential GPS rig, and we were around the campus and you know, set points and, you know, we learned the hard way on how to set up a GPS rig and that you know, to get a base station signal, you had to like, file uh, put in for permission and that took a couple of days and it's kind of a classic you're on a deadline you're trying to figure out how to make all this stuff work but it was a really fun crash course in getting beyond the academic understanding of, of a differential gps and pramukta was our cto and at pixelate had this cool idea of it'd be really interesting if everybody's phone could be a base station right is the way our so you have gps that we use on our phones is you know commodity GPS that uses the phone and the signal and satellites does trilateration and then you have another set, you know, additional satellite for time and so forth and it's just using those satellites and the phone to figure it out. But then you have people out that are surveying things. You'll see them out with poles and backpacks and they're getting centimeter level precision and they use a technique called differential GPS and probably the most common one is RTK or kind of real-time kinematics and what they're doing there is in addition to the signal that you would get off of your mobile device there's also a base station and that base station is, is sitting out there and it's fixed and it has a very precise signal that it's getting. And then that signal gets broadcasted out and then you can use that signal plus your own signal to do a differential calculation to use the errors from the more precise one with yours to get a very precise signal. It's a very crude and probably not, I didn't do a, a wonderful job of explaining that. So very, no, really okay, not we're not in a university course. It's good and high level. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the quick and dirty version, right? So one of the ideas that the Prick has is like, you know, what if we turn everybody's phone into a base station? And then if we anonymously shared all those errors in a geographic region, could we find an optimization model that reduced those errors across all the devices? 
because the, the errors are all in common as far as, you know, it's the same error from the satellite, the same set of errors, type of errors that are going down to one of the devices, which, you know, potentially there's, you know, those, you can look for interesting correlations with the errors, see what degree they're uncorrelated. And that opens up an interesting tool set of statistical techniques that we've been using on the computer vision side with, with Pixelate when we we're doing the, the AR stuff. And there's a thought that maybe we could apply some of those to this mass optimization problem potentially. But it's, it's all speculative, right? I mean, the interesting thing on this is that there's so many people looking at this problem, right? You know, there's an entire Kaggle challenge where hundreds and thousands of people have been trying to solve this problem. So whether or not this approach will work, you know, is so far we've been getting good traction. The results are looking interesting, but it's super speculative. Yeah, it still sounds like it's early days, right? You're still figuring it out from the beginning and looking at this novel approach to try and tackle a pretty, a pretty big problem. But I think, you know, it's probably the most interesting thing about it is that the opportunity of unlocking that problem if it can be solved is so potentially impactful from a technology development societal level that I think it, it's representative in, in how many different approaches people are taking right now to trying to solve the problem, right? whether it's launching an entirely new class of satellites to solve the problem, it's people putting in ultra-wideband sensors across it, you know, it's these Google opening up their API and giving you kind of previously very difficult to access full-spectrum metadata on GNS signals. That I think it's all very indicative of how big the opportunity is and how exciting it'll be once these things can get unlocked. And there's also a new dual band receivers that are showing up in mobile devices that are going to help with accuracy. That you know everybody's kind of pushing on this from from different directions, and you know, and the different solutions have different pros and cons, also, right? As we were discussing earlier, with you know the the, the new satellites are awesome, but somebody's got to pay the, the freight for that. So having that as a free, open, public good is a limitation in and of itself. You know, and same thing with the dual band receivers are awesome, but not many mobile devices have them right now. So if you're building apps that are dependent on a dual frequency GPS receiver, you know, you have an issue. And even with what we're talking about of taking advantage of the new raw signal available within the Android, you don't have that for Apple, right? And that's a huge class of users that are that are left out. Although conceivably, if there is a big breakthrough using that signal on the Google side that Apple may be similarly incentivized to open up theirs to have a competitive capability across it. Yeah, I would think that if Google got ahead, Apple would want to catch up for sure. They don't want to leave their users out, out in a lurch in the same way. Yeah, definitely. And it's going to be really exciting just to see all these different players you know, evolve and position and what techniques end up getting traction both with users and from, from a technical solution standpoint. Awesome. Well, it sounds exciting, and I'm I'm really keen to see what the future will bring in terms of the future of location and improved position, and and what it will unlock for us in terms of gaming and sport and all of the potential opportunities there. So, thank you very much for being here to share it with us. I really appreciate it, Sean. Oh, thanks for taking the time and giving me the opportunity. It's it's super fun to talk about, and been really exciting to work work on and try to learn more. I think it's as with many things in, in geospatial, they're all interrelated, interrelated, and interconnected. But you know, oftentimes you end up with a superficial understanding of one space, and then before the pixelate, it was like understanding photogrammetry and orthorectification within a three D space, and then understanding feature databases and key descriptors and augmented reality. And you know, it's just super fun diving in and learning about a new space. And it's similar on this, where we knew a decent amount about GPS, but then you know, getting under the covers and discovering that there are so many additional things to go learn. And then at the end of the day, I think where the where the real opportunities open up is when you get the cross between those things, the overlap, right? Where you begin to take the stuff that you learned on the computer vision side with AR 
and then you begin to apply it to the GPS stuff, and then you take the GPS stuff and begin to apply it back to the AR stuff. That it's it's when you get these intersections of disciplines where like new novel innovative ideas pop out. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but that cross section is always to me the most fun fun part to be working in. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can find the technology that topples that first big domino that cascades then into a whole new set of applications and opportunities, that's super rewarding, right? And then you know you've really made a difference in terms of changing the technology landscape. Yeah, it's definitely the hope. And you know, even if you don't, you have a lot of fun and learn a lot of new skills along the way. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sean. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at NowherePodcast.com, on Twitter at Nowhere underscore pod, and you can find me at John underscore Neufeld. See you later.